The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see this like kind of pink blur just kind of walk by me and I look and it's Fawny Willis in this like very bright dress and everyone kind of stops and Judge McAfee sees her and says, you know, uh, uh, you know, District Attorney Willis, like, do you have something to say? And and she uh, announced that she was directing her office to withdraw their motion to quash her subpoena and that she wanted to testify. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 17th, 2024. It's another episode of Trump's Trials and Tribulations, this one recorded before a live audience on Zoom yesterday afternoon. It's been a wild week in the Trump coverage. We've got a judgment from New York. It's a mega judgment from New York. We've got the best evidentiary hearing ever held in Fulton County. We've got Tyler McBrien at the scheduling conference for the New York criminal trial. We've got updates from Florida and Washington. It's a rollicking good time. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio were Roger Parloff, Tyler McBrien, and Anna Bauer, all of Lawfare and we covered it all. We also took audience questions from the live audience, the consolidated live audience of our material supporters and this week, guests. You too should become a material supporter. Get your questions answered. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 17th, Trump Trials and Tribulations, a wild and woolly week. So, Roger, get us started. What the heck just happened in New York State Court? Uh, Well, just less than an hour ago, I think we got the civil verdict from uh, Arthur Engeron. That's uh, the case uh, that Letitia James brought. Um, It was about uh, uh, valuations, uh, false valuations, primarily of Trump's properties. Uh, It was the end of an 11 week bench trial uh, with 40 witnesses. It lasted 43 days. And so the verdict uh, was at least uh, $355 million uh, for Trump jointly and severally. But I think that understates it because 
168 million of that will have prejudgment interest going back to March of 2019. That's a lot of prejudgment interest. Um, 126 million has interest going back to May 2022. Um, Trump was banned for three years from top roles with uh, any New York company. Two-year ban for his sons, permanent ban for uh, his former CFO, Alan Weisselberg, and his controller, Jeffrey McConey. Each each adult son, Eric and Don Jr., got $4 million, uh, need to pay $4 million. Um, the uh, monitor continues. Barbara Jones, she'll continue to monitor the company. Uh, he wants her to give a recommendation about what to do next. He did rescind the part about canceling the business certificates. If you remember before this all started, he had already held that he had committed on a summary judgment motion he, that Trump had committed something called persistent fraud. Um, and uh, he had rescinded the business certificates. Honestly, I don't know exactly what that means, but he, he rescinded that for the moment. He's going to wait to see what uh, the monitor Barbara Jones recommends. Um, uh, the other things I'll, I'll quickly, uh, he, he uh, interestingly, he did find Michael Cohen, who was a witness, this becomes important, um, uh, credible. He acknowledged that he has been, you know, pled guilty to perjury in the past. He called him an important witness, but not the linchpin, and uh, mainly uh, believed him because of, uh, he said, uh, found his testimony credible based on relaxed manner in which he testified the general plausibility of his statements, and more importantly, the way his testimony was corroborated by other evidence. As for Trump, he said he rarely responded to questions asked, and he frequently interjected long, irrelevant speeches on issues far beyond the scope of the trial. His refusal to answer the questions directly, or in some cases at all, severely compromised his credibility. I guess those are the key things. That, um, yeah. And so what does this mean in terms of the so the full magnitude of the fine is three hundred fifty four million? Three fifty five. But uh, with the interest, it, it I mean, it, it it's way over. I mean, I don't know what the interest I've how. But prejudgment interest is always whopping. Uh, so I, I would say probably over 400 million when when it's all told. And how much of that has to be put up? How quickly for there to be an appeal? Like, what's the what's the procedure now? Does somebody come and seize Trump Tower? What ha yeah. what happens? Uh, honestly, I'm going to rely on the, the New York Times for this part because uh, I, I uh, have not been uh, steeped in this. My understanding, he has 30 days uh, to appeal, and then he does have to put it up. It might be 100%, um, uh, it might be 110%, but you, you can get a bond, which would mean you would put up a percentage, and then the, the bond company would put up the rest. But still, it, it's very expensive. There's interest. It's a, it's a burden, and you have to find somebody willing to loan to you. I do business with you. Right. Well, that's what Deutsche Bank is for. <laughs> yeah. So, um, all right. So for those who are keeping score 
at home. We now have a criminal case against the Trump Organization and against Mr. Weisselberg. We have a we have two civil cases against Trump himself from E. Jean Carroll. We have this case against the Trump Organization and Trump and the whole crew uh, on the civil side. Remind me what else there has been that has already come to judgment. Uh, well, going back some time, you know, we had, uh, I think there was a, uh, the company was found to have, there was a charity fraud. Uh, I think that was maybe the Trump Foundation. There was, of course, the civil suit against Trump University, um, which ended in uh, almost an a settlement, but, you know, almost for all the money being sought. You know, other than the four pending criminal cases, uh, I, I can't remember all the other things that might be out there. Gotcha. Uh, we we do have a lot of verdicts, you know, building up there. You know, the last E. Jean Carroll verdict was eighty three point three million. We had uh, the five million for the first E. Jean Carroll verdict. Uh, so he's simultaneously going to have to put that money up uh, while appealing, and it. It pretty soon, it, you know, it's gets to be real money. Right. Yeah. 85 million there, 350 million there. Pretty soon it adds up. Um, all right. Um, what else do we need to know about the I, I, I hate to dismiss a 350 million dollar judgment <laughs> in the first 10 minutes of the show. But um, but like anything else we need to know? Uh, you know, what I thought was sort of interesting, remember the, the first, uh, before the, you know, before the trial started, he did have this summary judgment where he said the company was guilty of persistent fraud. And what the rest of this trial was, was the other, um, I think seven, either six or seven causes of act, six, six other causes of action. Um, and I think he was named, Trump was named in all but one of them. One was just Weisselberg and McConney. What those other others are, are intent to commit various other violations of the penal law. Now, it's only by, you know, a preponderance of the evidence. It's not a um, beyond a reasonable doubt. But each of those causes of action is actually intent to commit a crime. And the, the, the first one is uh, falsification of business records, which is what coincidentally he's being charged with in the criminal case, because it's a different matter altogether. Uh, second is conspiracy to commit falsification of business records. Um, the judge found that those were uh, the, there was overwhelming evidence and ample evidence of those two. Uh, the third was issuing false financial statements. The fourth was conspiring to issue false financial statements. The next was uh, the insurance fraud. And the next was conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. So uh, those are the other uh, 
those are the other. So you add those up and, and you've got, I mean, he has been adjudicated or he or his companies have been adjudicated to have committed persistent fraud, insurance fraud, charity fraud, business fraud, uh, consumer fraud. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot. A lot of fraud, yeah. all the different kinds. So um, obviously the opinion itself, uh, you've only had a few minutes to look at, but uh, what jumps out at you about it in terms of its vitality on appeal? Is it reasonably well constructed? Is it, um, you know, does anything? Yeah, it's 92 pages. Uh, it goes uh, through each witness, you know, 43 witnesses and, and what his. It, so it seems careful and uh, it, it's not uh, fulminating. Um, he seems to control himself. He says that, you know, uh, I preface it by pointing out that uh, New York City is the financial capital of this country and one of the financial capitals of the world. And and at some point, uh, I forget that, you know, in the mid 50s, really, they they be, they the uh, legislature decided there was too much fraud and they started to um, try to clean things up and they enacted some laws like this. And then uh, Jacob Javits, uh, during his administration, they passed some more and uh, or, or uh, I mean, and and um, I don't know if you, if was he governor ever? I, I can't remember. He was a senator, actually. Yeah, I remember him as a senator, but I, I can't remember. They do mention him in the opinion. I can't remember why. But that they feel that it's important to enforce these uh, uh, you, you can't uh, to enforce these laws against fraud for the economy of of the city and for the economy of the country. All right. Same building, Tyler, or a different building? I think it's the same building. Was it was it at 100 Center Street? I know they kept referencing Michael Cohen committing perjury across the street. Um, mm. so All right, maybe a different building. Street. Yeah, no, it would not be. It would not be 100 Center. It might be. I think it was 60 or 110. So right across the street. Uh, Tyler woke up very early in the morning, stood out in the cold. First of all, were you first in line? For the public, I was indeed. I was just following in Anna's footsteps. Wait, but Anna, does that does that cut it to be not first in the press line, but first in the public line? Does that uphold our standards here? I think that upholds our standards. You got into the courtroom. I was in I was in the room. If you had been inclined and had had a grape to throw at Donald Trump, could you have hit him with a grape? Right between the eyes. All right. Um, I think you did well. Tyler was there for the first uh, status conference in quite a long time in the courtroom of Juan Merson, um, who uh, has the... Uh, the fabulous uh, Stormy Daniels hush money case. Um, first of all, we have a trial date, I think. March 25th. And what is going to happen on March 25th? And how solid are we about it? Are we are we confident it's real? Or are we um, 
or are we uh, not? So uh, jury selection is set to begin on March 25th. Given uh, Justice Marchand's demeanor and um, authority with which he wielded uh, this um, hearing, I would be quite confident that it would proceed. Um, he made many points throughout the, the hearing that he wanted this trial to proceed efficiently um, in a timely manner. And so I, I, would, I would be confident that it would begin on the 25th. All right. And uh, what begins on the 25th is actually jury selection. So this isn't Fulton County where jury selection takes a year, um, at least for some trials. Um, how long does Fulton County or does New York jury selection likely to take in a case like this? Uh, well, I think it's a, a, a tricky question given the defendant. Um, a few times in the hearing, um, Judge Marchand, who also presided over uh, the civil case uh, against the Trump organization, um, sorry, sorry, rather, the, the E. Jean Carroll case, he mentioned that during jury selection, he had suggested at the beginning of the process that for efficiency's sake, um, he thought that it might be prudent to immediately dismiss any jurors who, upon raising their hand, or upon being asked if they could be uh, impartial or fair, raise their hand uh, saying that they could not, to dismiss them without further questioning. Um, they didn't take that tack uh, on the first slate of jurors, um, but upon you know, f becoming bogged down in the process, they, they proceeded that way. So Justin Mershon also um, suggested that jury selection proceed in that way for this case. The defense um, did not agree with that and, and instead wanted a, a hybrid approach. Um, but uh, it seems that they will be issuing questionnaires and uh, it wasn't clear exactly how long they expected the, the, the selection process to, to conclude. Yeah, my guess is that if Justice Mershon is imagining that the trial is a six-week trial, he's imagining no more than a week or two for jury selection. Does that sound right to you, Roger? Well, what I had heard... Well, I mean, he can't. It's 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 a huge uh, challenge to get a fair jury. I mean, in a case like this, uh, I, so I think he's. I can't imagine it would be less than two weeks. What I had heard originally was that he did he did they repeat that six weeks uh, uh, estimate? Okay, because I also heard that he doesn't sit on Wednesdays. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Which, yeah, which so. is a real pain in the neck for those yeah. of us who were thinking of coming up from Washington. <laughs> <laughs> you know, can't you like not sit on Mondays or Fridays? Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I again, further evidence that not a lot of judges are considering my needs in uh in their uh trial management he, he did i would say he did add that he hopes that wednesday would become a day of rest for everyone involved in the trial which i think wednesday famously is not the most restful day coming at the middle of the week yeah so i want to uh uh do fulton county stuff first so what we're going to do to uh so that anna can uh go back into court is we're going to do we're going to focus on fulton county now I'm going to take all of the Fulton County questions um, uh, and then we're going to just get rid of Anna 
and she's going to wander back into into court. So Anna, um, I want to start by saying that yesterday's hearing was the best television I have ever watched on any subject. And it had a bit of Perry Mason. It had a bit of General Hospital. It had a bit of House of Cards. And Bonnie Willis is the most electric witness I have ever watched. Um, and so, first of all, do you agree with me that as a show, this gets two really big thumbs up? It, it gets two really big thumbs up as a show. I, I mean, I will say, too, that I don't know what it was like watching it on TV because I was in court. But I mean, it was an experience being in that courtroom yesterday. We everyone in the gallery went on a collective journey together that it was like nothing I have ever experienced being in a courtroom. I mean, there were just there was so much drama and and I don't want to detract from the very high stakes and and serious you know nature of the fact that this relates to uh a very important case that is important for democracy and accountability and all of that but uh putting that aside for a minute i mean it was like nothing else it was drama it was uh you know fascinating it was really remarkable at one point you know watching Trump's attorney, uh, Steve Sadow, cross, or excuse me, uh, directly examine Fonnie Willis, the prosecutor who is prosecuting his client, who just happens to be the uh, leading Republican, you know, front runner for presidential uh, nomination. I mean, and the two of them sparring, you know, back and forth. It was just uh, you couldn't look away. It was it was really I, I'm still kind of just stunned by it all because it was quite a sight. All right. First of all, we got we to gotta do our lawfare due diligence here. Steve Sadow, Trump's lawyers, what kind of boots was he wearing yesterday and today? Okay, so yesterday he had on a pair that were, uh, it was black ostrich leather. Uh, today uh, he's wearing, they're very, I've never seen him wear this pair, um, but they're uh, this, this like, gray suede with at the top there's like a little kind of design with black uh black suede so uh but it, it's a very interesting pair today i i'm a fan of it all right turning to serious stuff so yesterday morning looked disastrous for the district attorney's office the morning starts with uh, the testimony of a friend of Willis, whose lease she took over, who testified somewhat sketchily, but pretty definitively that this relationship began before Willis and Wade admitted that it began. And when she did that, she then set up the uh, uh, Ashley Merchant and, and the uh, the defendants to call Wade himself, whose testimony was a semi-disaster, I thought. He kind of all but admitted that he'd lied in sworn interrogatories in his divorce, or he didn't admit that they were lies, but he admitted essentially the facts of them are not exactly true. Um, 
he then proceeds to tell this outlandish story, hold the outlandishness thought for a moment, that uh, Fonnie Willis paid for all her own travel, uh, but she paid him back with cash, and um, and yeah, he can't account for any of it. Did you share my sense at the end of Wade's testimony that the case was imploding? I did. And I want to be clear that it wasn't because I felt that they'd proved uh, that, you know, a financial interest uh, that Fonnie Willis had a financial interest or that she benefited financially necessarily uh, from Nathan Wade. Although I think that, you know, I did share your concerns about Wade's explanation that the expenses had been reimbursed in cash uh, or excuse me, the personal travel had been reimbursed in cash. But I think the key thing for me uh, was was that the, the state had represented in its filings that this relationship didn't begin until 2022 after Nathan Wade was appointed in November of 2021. Uh, they had Robin Yurti who testified to uh, claiming that she believed that this relationship began before that time period. And then also added to the fact that that Nathan Wade's testimony did not seem to go particularly well. And, and they had all this kind of, you know, impeachment uh, materials with his divorce filings. It really just did not look good all around. Um, and you got the sense that maybe there was something to the claim that had been made by Ashley Merchant that the state had misrepresented when this relationship began, which I think certainly would have given uh, uh, McAfee reason to uh, infer a conflict, um, even if, you know, he he thought to himself, um, you know, that the the financial benefit, supposed financial benefits were, you know, kind of minimal. Um, I think that this idea that maybe there were misrepresentations and knowing misrepresentations in the state's filings would be um, something for him to say, you know, there might be a conflict here. Um, but with that said, I, Ben, I don't, did you also then have a total kind of, or maybe not total, but uh, Fonnie Willis appears in the room okay, and so, takes so the stand. Pause a moment and just like, because this is the turning point <laughs> of the day, right? Um, and I've never seen anything like it. She basically barged into court and demanded to testify, right? So like, I, I saw her in the corner of the frame, but you were there. So like, what happened? What did she do? I mean, I yeah, I completely gasped and I was like, oh, my. And 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 so I, I was sitting, uh, you know, she came in on my left and all of a sudden, I mean, it's a sea of, you know, attorneys in uh, like dark black suits or Navy suits. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see this like kind of pink blur just kind of walk by me and I look and it's Fonnie Willis in this like very bright dress and everyone kind of stops and Judge McAfee sees her and says, you know, uh, uh, you know, District Attorney Willis, like, do you have something to say? And and she uh, announced that she was directing her office to withdraw their motion to quash her subpoena and that she wanted to testify. Uh, and it was just a, a high drama, one of those high drama moments in the courtroom that day. I've 
never seen a moment like that. It felt like it was out of a movie, to be honest. All right. So she then takes over and testifies for the rest of the day and testifies to a lot of the same things that Nathan Wade had, the, that she paid him back in cash. And she had an interesting explanation for that, which is that her father, who then turns around and testifies today, always told her, you keep cash in the house, always have enough cash for six months. And she does things in cash. Um, she, the same story that seemed completely implausible when Nathan Wade was telling it seemed somehow credible and not nearly as cagey when she was saying it. Um, did you, I know Roger, you watched it as well. Did, did you guys have a view of that? Like, am I, or am I just like a sucker for her charisma? But I thought, like, by the end of the day, I was kind of like, huh, maybe they didn't start their relationship until after he was appointed and she reimbursed him for all that stuff in cash. It seems weird, but she seemed yeah. pretty credible about it. Yeah, I believed it coming from her and I hadn't believed it coming from him. I think part of it was she sort of because I thought it might have been more credible at first to just say, well, you know, I paid for some things sometimes and he paid for things other times. I didn't know the claim was going to be that he that she actually reimbursed him in cash, which seemed bizarre. But then she it seemed with her to be this, uh, you know, that she doesn't take money from men. You know, she's her own. She's her own person. And uh, also at one point she said, I don't have a checkbook, which I thought was uh, interesting. And um, I don't think she would say that if she did. It'd be too easy to disprove. I don't know if maybe younger people now, I don't know, Anna, do, do people not have checkbooks anymore? Uh, I, I mean, I have a checkbook. <laughs> Whether I can tell you where it is uh, is another question entirely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't have so, a checkbook. <laughs> huh. So, you know, maybe it, it began to, to hang together for me. All right. So here's uh, Anna. Today we had another day of testimony. It was a little more broken up. Um, what happened today? And then let's talk about where this leaves us. Right. So Fonnie Willis was set to continue her uh, testimony this morning after she really kind of seemed to bring it all back for the, or the, bring some momentum back to the state at the end of the day yesterday. Uh, but this morning, Judge McAfee, when we got in there, uh, excuse me, Anna Cross told Judge McAfee that in fact, the state, which was set to commence its cross-examination of Fonnie Willis, the, the state actually did not have any further questions for DA Willis. I think that was a smart strategic move because if they had uh, cross-examined Fonnie Willis, then it means that it would have reopened questioning on redirect from the defense teams. So I think that that was a smart move. So then we moved on to the next witness by the defense counsel that was supposed to be Terrence Bradley, who is Wade's former law partner and, and former uh, defense 
counsel. He they tried to get him to testify the day before, but he invoked privilege. And because of those kind of discussions that were ongoing, they decided to put off his testimony. So they tried to call Terrence Bradley, but he was at a doctor's appointment. Uh, Judge McAfee became increasingly uh, frustrated by Terrence Bradley not being in in the room uh, on the day that he was supposed to testify. He at one point indicated that Terrence Bradley was in violation of subpoena. But we moved on to the oh, one sec. I one second. I need to um, uh, one All second. Right. We will. Uh, so um, the. The court heard from a couple of other witnesses, um, but we will return to Anna's saga momentarily. So back to New York, Tyler. Um, so I guess the first thing that uh, uh, Judge Mershon, I'm trying to keep all these judges, got Angoran, Mershon, McAfee, Chutkin, it's hard to keep them all straight. Um, the first thing that uh, Judge Mershon um, did yesterday is issued a lengthy opinion rejecting a number of motions to dismiss. Uh, anything, uh, anything other than routine about that opinion? Yeah. Well, first I want to. I just want to point out the irony that uh, who would have thought that the courtroom uh, in which that Trump was in would be the calm, you know, not news grabbing one. I, fe I felt a bit of FOMO uh, hearing Anna restate i feel like i i went i was in the wrong courtroom but well um, yeah i know and so was trump i mean he loves to be where the drama is he was upstage he went to the routine scheduling hearing mm -hmm. and mi missed his chance for a stare down with bonnie willis uh but but yeah getting back to the decision um it was dispensed with fairly quickly um judge mershon just said justice mershon rather at the beginning said in substance the defendant's motion to dismiss um is has been denied um i think i can i can break down quickly the what the defense was trying to argue um the yeah, first just just walk us through the uh walk us through the components of that uh ruling sure the first uh major grounds on which the the defense tried to dismiss the case was on uh, a pre-indictment delay um, the Mershon noted that there are typically five factors um, under which, uh, you know, the defense could win delay. Trump's team did not uh, make a compelling case to Mershon for any of the factors, uh, the extent of the delay, reasons of the delay, the nature of the underlying charges. Um, the fourth one, length of pretrial incarceration, didn't um, apply here, of course. Uh, and then whether the defense was prejudiced or somehow impaired because of the delay. Um, I think it was both a uh, a lack of um, compelling evidence or argument put forth by the defense, but also um, several good reasons put forth by the prosecution. Um, I think we can sort of uh, distill this all into uh, it just being a, a very complex or um, a very complex investigation. To be sure, it has been uh, you know years in the making. Um, so several years have passed since the alleged commission of crimes and and now the and then the indictment um but many reasons for the delay uh were were quite compelling one that the um the investigation paused after 2018 because one of the the key witnesses Michael Cohen was uh, involved in a federal investigation then immediately after that um one year pause uh the um, district attorney's office subpoenaed uh Trump's um accounting firm Mazers 
Um, and that involved a lengthy litigation, which further delayed um, the investigation or tied it up. So all these reasons amounted to um, Judge Mershon dismissing the, uh, on the pre-indictment challenge, or sorry, pre-indictment delay grounds. Um, the second big bucket was uh, uh, the legal insufficiency of charges. Again, um, Mershon didn't find this never one. prevails. Never exactly. Um, the I think one of the the interesting one that I'll that I'll note is the one on selective prosecution. Um, Although in this case, the legal, uh, before you go on, the legal insufficiency of charges is actually the thing that this case gets criticized for, right? That there's you know. That That's there's true. this ele elevation from felony to for misdemeanor for felony. Uh, he didn't seem very patient with that argument. He actually, you know, for those who in the commentariat who are uh, uh, in dismissive of this case because there's some, you know, legal deficiency of the charges, he made pretty quick work of it. Agreed. And and I'll, yeah, I'll take everyone back to April of last year when the indictment was unsealed and there was a lot of commentary on this being a disaster for Bragg, uh, that it was thin. Um, last fall, I believe, Susan Nichellis, if I'm saying her name correctly, one of uh, co-counsel for, for Trump, called it a zombie case. So I think I, I, I agree. I, you know, I, I don't think I was right to immediately dismiss this, but but Mershon did make quick work of it. Um then the last uh, being selective uh, prosecution. I think this is a, a favorite of, of, of Trump, uh, usually when he's making public comment. Uh, an interesting th thing here was that Mershon, I think, in, in, the, in his decision, he pointed to many statements that Trump himself has made that these criminal um, charges not only didn't hurt him, but have actually helped sort of burnish his political campaign or, or bolster it. Um, that gets to to one of the the points that the defense tried to make about uh, whether this delay or in this investigation impaired or or prejudiced him in some way. Um, but Mershon, I think quite compellingly argued the opposite using Trump's own words. Um, so I think that covers the, the the decision, but happy to get into the. All right. So the body of the hearing at least from my scan of the transcript, seemed to be Trump's lawyer, Todd Blanche, trying to get the trial delayed uh, and Mershon being increasingly impatient with it. Is that fair? Or, I mean, we'll get to the, we'll get to the other stuff in a moment, but most of it seemed to be like Todd Blanche saying, please, we need more time, and Mershon saying no. I think that's a fair assessment. That's what it felt like in the gallery, just this repeated attempts at delaying the date, which Judge Justice Mershon had established within the first five minutes of the hearing. Uh, at one point, Blanche himself even said that he feels he felt like he was beating a dead horse, uh, which was a stunning, uh, I think, moment of, of um, you know, self-consciousness in a way. Um, but even, even when the, it seemed like Blanche had moved on from, from the, from arguing the, the start of the trial, then when uh, Ju Justice Mershon got into some of the particulars of the deadlines leading up to jury selection on March 25th, even then sort of at the margins, um, Todd Blanche tried to push back a day here, a few days here, often citing, um, 
the fact that he is also lead counsel on um, Trump's Mar-a-Lago case as well. Um, but he, 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 I would say Blanche pursued a few angles to 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 get Mershon to, to give him a delay. The first being the complications with other these other criminal cases against Trump. Uh, one being the electoral calendar, so the number of of primaries and um, caucuses that are occurring um, between now and the start of the trial, and, and as the trial is ongoing, uh, and several other angles. Um, but Mershon was not budging on any of them. I think reading the transcript and some of the coverage, you you may come a- away with the impression that Mershon was very short with Blanche throughout the entire hearing. I think that that covers up some of the actual rapport that I felt like they did have. Um, I, I noted in, in my dispatch that uh, Mershon won a, won a or sorry, rather Blanche won a smile here and there from Mershon. Um, so it wasn't all uh, combative, I would say. Um, but I think that's a fair assessment to say, it, at least from the gallery, it felt like much of the hearing was repeated failed attempts from Blanche to delay the, the start of the trial. All right, we will come back to New York, but we're bouncing back to Fulton County where Anna has magically appeared back on screen. All right, so give us a little bit of an overview of what happened today. They had trouble getting Bradley there, but they heard from Fonnie Willis's dad. Yeah, we heard from Fonnie Willis's dad. Uh, He testified to, for example, Fonnie Willis's uh, habit of using cash or keeping cash in her house. Uh, and, and it was interesting, you know, because he, uh, had this one really great quote where he said, <laughs> I think it was something like, I don't mean to be racist, but it's a black thing. Uh, y- you know, we like, we keep cash or something like that. Um, and, and some people have actually, you know, mentioned in the chat that there are studies that kind of talk about, uh, different cultural habits of, of, um, storing cash. Uh, and so he also though, just talked about how it was something that he'd always told, uh, Fonnie Willis that she needed to do. Uh, so that was interesting. And then also corroborated or seemed to corroborate, uh, Fonnie Willis's, uh, explanation when she was on the stand the day prior as to why she reimbursed Nathan, Nathan Wade for their travels together, um, with cash. Um, and then we also heard from him about whether he'd ever met Nathan Wade prior to 2023. He said that that's the first time that he met Wade. He also said that Fonnie had a different boyfriend who, as it turns out, was a disc jockey uh, in 2019 and 2020. So there were some, you know, really other interesting moments and and also some in- very entertaining moments from him as well. Um, and and but those are the kind of main points from his testimony. Uh, and then, you know, we did finally also see Terrence Bradley testify in the afternoon. Uh, I think that that uh, testimony I'm still uh, thinking about a little bit more because I think that there are some things that could go one way and some things that could go another. The main issue with Terrence Bradley was whether any communications that he'd had about had with Wade 
uh, about Wade's relationship with Fonnie Willis, whether that uh, those communications were privileged. So there were a lot of arguments about privilege. And Judge McAfee ultimately decided uh, that the communications that defense attorneys wanted to ask about uh, that Bradley had with Wade, who he represented in the divorce case, were ultimately privileged. But uh, he he's going to do an in-camera review uh, of, of, or excuse me, a, have a discussion with Bradley about those communications in chambers uh, and without the presence of, of defense counsel or prosecutors um, and, and, you know, then consider uh, whether with the defense's arguments, whether they are in fact privileged. Uh, I also have seen from reporting since I left the courtroom, there was an interesting uh, cross-examination of, of Bradley by the state uh, Bradley on direct had testified that he left his law practice that he shared with Nathan Wade due to a disagreement over, um, you know, certain things related to the divorce case. But then on cross-examination, it, it turns out that there had been an accusation against Bradley of sexual assault by an employee of the, the firm that he shared with Wade. Um, so I, I, you know, I know that there were some objections in terms of relevance of that, but it, I I will catch up on that news uh, whenever I'm able to after our Trump trials. But it sounds to me like that is kind of the bottom line of, you know, one of the big things that came out on cross-examination of Bradley. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. All right, so... Where does this leave us? The the question allegedly before the court is, does Fonnie Willis have a conflict of interest with respect to these defendants because she hired somebody she had a romantic relationship with, he got money from Fulton County and he spent money on her. Um, she... They both dispute that they were involved when he when she uh, retained him, and they both dispute that he spent money on her. Um, although they cannot document it because uh, the reimbursements were in cash, um, and there is some testimony, albeit not very strong, that. They are misrepresenting when the relationship began. This former friend of Willis's 
testified yesterday that the relationship had in fact begun earlier. So where do we sit now with respect to the defendant's burden of establishing that there's a conflict of interest? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that it a lot of it is going to come down to the findings of fact that Judge McAfee makes uh, in, in terms of, um, you know, who is he going to find to be more credible with respect to the, um, you know, representations about when the relationship started? Uh, and then also the question of, does he believe that there actually was some kind of cash reimbursement? Although I'm not even really sure, even if there wasn't a reimbursement, you know, I'm not entirely convinced that that uh, Nathan Wade, you know, paying for a few vacations for Fonnie Willis, uh, you know, even though I think that I, there should ought to be maybe some real questions about Fonnie Willis's judgment in hiring Wade, or if he, if you know, if it turns out that they were involved beforehand, um, you know, I'm still not entirely sure that the defense counsel have have appropriately like connected it to this case. Um, because that's the real question is, is how does it connect to an interest in continuing to prosecute or bring a case against these defendants? Um, and so I think maybe that's a little bit of the link that to me is missing. Um, but I, I also think beyond that, one of the big questions here is what standard is McAfee going to apply in terms of, you know, Georgia courts have said that it's what's required is an actual conflict. So it can't just be something that, you know, you're speculating about whether there is some kind of uh, conflict of interest. Uh, but then there's also some language in, in certain uh, Georgia, case, Georgia case law that kind of hints at the idea that maybe you could just apply a appearance of impropriety standard. So where the defense counsel doesn't necessarily have to show that there actually was a conflict, but, you know, that there's at least the appearance of one and, and something that is, you know, people have pointed out with this respect is that when uh, Judge McBurney, who was the presiding judge of the special purpose grand jury, when he decided to disqualify Fonnie Willis from investigating Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, he in a footnote in that decision kind of indicated that maybe he was applying an appearance of impropriety standard. Uh, and then at the hearing on Monday, Judge McAfee said yeah, something he about mentioned appearance, yeah. as though, but it's not the standard. Right? It's not the standard. And so but that the fact that he mentioned it was something that, you know, I noticed uh, because it seemed and, and it's something that defense counsel have raised some some who have adopt, adopted and supplemented uh, the motion that was originally filed by Mike Roman have, you know, raised this idea of applying an appearance of impropriety standard. But we haven't really gotten to any of that because this was just an evidentiary hearing uh, next week. It's very likely that we might see some oral argument. Uh, but I, I also think we might see a post hearing brief from defense counsel. Uh, so we're, it's going to be like a, a I, I don't think there's we're going to see anything right away with this. Uh, I think that uh, it'll be some time before Judge McAfee makes a decision. But did I miss anything there, Ben, that you think uh, in terms of where what what the big issues are and where we no, go I from here? I think that's right. Uh, let me let me just ask you a few 
more specific questions, though. So we have this one, only one witness, I think, who says there was an affair before they admit there was an affair, right? There. They've well, yes. So yes, we have we have Robin Yurti who testified to that. The the Terrence Bradley stuff is a little bit harder to parse because I'm not sure what was actually I need to go back through and see what was actually admissible, because that's one of the big questions here is like there there were certain things they elicited from Bradley um, or that they, you know, uh, had exhibits about. There's this email exchange, for example, where Ashley Merchant said that she emailed Bradley a copy of the motion that had the original allegations in which she represents that Wade had a, a relationship with Willis before um, he was appointed. And she she says that she asked him, is this accurate? And he replied, um, looks yes, looks good. Um, so, and I'm right, not... So that's in the record. Um, well, that yeah. So so I, that's in the record. But, you know, previously it was kind of strange because previously when he started to answer that question, Judge McAfee s- sustained an objection on privilege grounds. Um, but it's it's regardless, that is like a little bit of a murky, right. you know, statement. So, right. Because so, so it seems to me. I mean, I'm just trying to assess the state of the evidence. It seems to me that the the argument that there's a conflict of interest has three pillars. One is that there is an affair. Okay, they've established that. The second uh, is that 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 relationship predates his hiring. And so it's not simply an affair between two people who work together like she was giving him money that he's then kicking back to her, right? So it seems to me they're a little iffy on this point. They have kind of one and a half bad witnesses, but they've got a fair bit of smoke. And it really comes down to the question of whether Judge McAfee believes the two of them, who both swear that they did not have a relationship until they did. The third element is that there's financial commingling. And here, there's. it seems to me they've got nothing. Um, there's evidence that they went on trips together, and there's sworn testimony from both of them that she reimbursed him for those trips. It's weird as hell, in my uh, opinion, although her father would say that's because I'm white. Um, you know, fair enough. There's nothing illegal about reimbursing him in cash. And it's not clear to me that they have any evidence that it didn't happen. So what's the what's the best case you can make for the idea that there really is a conflict here, given that they've only kind of got one and a half legs of the stool? I mean, I think that the best case, again, and I I I. I don't I don't agree with this, but I think that the best case is that Judge McAfee does not find um, he he if he would not find that they were being honest about the reimbursement. Um, and if he did not find that they were being honest about the relationship not beginning until after Nathan Wade was appointed uh, and and that. OK, um, so, so what you're saying is that he would have to like. There's not affirmative evidence. He would have to draw a negative inference from 
from their being not credible. Yeah, I think that's right. See, and that's what I think is now become. This is why I think this is the the question of whether they lied has actually become the crucial, crucial question yes. to me. Uh, and, and so I think that is now the most important question because not necessarily because it it in itself creates a conflict, but it gives rise to this presumption that there is a conflict through, you know, this relationship. Okay, so so one one last question on this, uh, and then we're going to move on. Um, I agree with you that the key question is whether they lied less because of what it does is because it generates a conflict than because a prosecutor who's lying on the stand is simply not credible and needs to not be on that case. Um, that said, there is one situation about which I have very high confidence that Nathan Wade was not wholly candid, and that is in his divorce proceedings, he filed a bunch of, of, of interrogatories about which he was quizzed in his testimony yesterday that were not true. Um, and um, he has an explanation that maybe get, maybe gets him around a perjury charge, but boy, are those not true interrogatory answers. Um, and so quite apart from the disqualification question with respect to a conflict, seems to me he's got a candor to the court problem that should really get him yanked off the case. I am in total agreement with you, Ben. I mean, I I think that one thing that I am just very, uh, you know, surprised that this was not something they did immediately was to say, you know, no matter what, Nate, like, to, you know, if they're having a conversation within the DA's office, even if they feel that this case has been successful under Nathan Wade's stewardship, even if they think that he's doing a great job on this particular case, the kind of public narrative around it and the, the things that came out about his divorce court stuff, although irrelevant to the merits of the Trump case and what's going on in terms of, you know, the evidence there. It is it is a very bad look for an officer of the court to be held in contempt and to have these interrogatories in which it seems that he was um, either, you know, misrepresenting things because, well, I, I don't want to make any assumptions about what was going on there, but it just it really was not uh, something that that looked, uh, you know, like he was being candid with that court. And, and it creates a kind of perception problem that would certainly warrant uh, Fonnie Willis asking him to step down. Um, and she's got other people in that office who have been on this case who could take over the reins. Um, and and I think that, you know, strategically, uh, it it is maybe a misstep for them to, you know, uh, uh, not consider that at least as as something that... Um, they could do in terms of the kind of public perception problem around Wade's conduct. All right. We're going to go through the Fulton County questions. Then we're going to dismiss Anna uh, so that she can wander back into court. Kevin asks, if Trump is convicted in Fulton County, what are the chances that he'll be pardoned by the Georgia State Board of Pardons and Paroles? Answer. 60 Three percent. No, we have no idea, right? 
we have two Georgians on the on on the call. What are the chances that if Trump is convicted in Fulton County, he'll be convicted under uh, he'll be uh, pardoned under Georgia's weird pardoning scheme that runs through a pardons board? I think very unlikely uh, it, that board. Um, well, I need to look into this, but I actually think that there is a certain period of time in, under which you actually have to serve your sentence. Um, uh, although I need to recheck those rules. It's been a while since I've looked at it. Um, but uh, the, the other thing I, I just I'm, I would be very surprised if that pardon board uh, pardoned him. They are not known to be folks who are particularly partisan. Um, I you know, I, I just everything that I have heard talking to people is that, you know, it's not a situation in which they think that it would it would be something that they would do in terms of offering him a pardon. All right. The the great anonymous attendee asks, if Judge McAfee decides not to disqualify Fonnie Willis, can the defense appeal that decision? And how would that work? They can appeal that decision, but uh, my understanding is that like most appeals before trial in Georgia, uh, except some uh, certain types of appeals, uh, they would have to, the defense counsel would have to seek a certificate of uh, review. Uh, so basically it's a discretionary call by Judge McAfee as to whether or not he wants to let them appeal before trial. Um, and, and so they would, you know, try to appeal, but it would be up to Judge McAfee as to whether they have to wait until after the trial to do so. Um, and then, of course, if if he declines to issue that certificate for them to appeal, they could they can still on direct appeal after the trial, you know, bring up this issue and, and appeal then. All right. And Mike asks, can you discuss how to characterize the standard for the Wade Willis relationship? in terms that actually have legal significance and are justiciable. Is it romantic, involved, sexual? I will point out that Wade yesterday was uh, uh, amusingly explicit on this point. Whenever somebody would ask him about when the relationship started or ended, he would say, you mean intercourse? Um, he He was... Uh, they definitely tried to make the questioner as uncomfortable as humanly possible. Yeah. So what's the relevant standard here, Anna? Well, I, well, I mean, I, I will say it's, it's a hard question to answer because in terms of what any of those things, like there's no case law that actually says, you know, having a romantic or a sexual relationship, you know, between two prosecutors is something that is itself disqualifying the standard that you're looking at is whether the there is a person, the prosecutor had a personal or financial co conflict of interest as it relates to the conviction. So I think that, you know, the thing that people have pointed out or the case that people pointed out is this case that relates to prosecutors who are being paid uh, to by a contingency fee arrangement. So they basically only got compensation if they got a conviction. And the Georgia court said, no, no, this is contrary to public policy because it basically gives prosecutors an incentive to get a conviction and not just do what is right or what is justice. Uh, and, and so that's a kind of analogy that defense counsel have 
have latched on to because they're saying that this kickback, this alleged, you know, so-called like kickback scheme in which uh, Fonnie Willis pays Nathan Wade and then he takes her on vacation is kind of giving her this incentive to prosecute these people or expand this case to a big RICO case um, or, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I will say a lot of the language in the case law relates to an interest. If someone has a benefit or an interest in conviction, whereas here, you know, the the outcome of Nathan Wade is paid no matter what the outcome of the case is. Um, And so that's why defense counsel have kind of argued that, well, yeah, but actually it, it gave them incentive to really draw out the investigation, do a special purpose grand jury, make it a big, massive 19 person RICO case. Um, so that's the kind of arguments they've made. But it, McAfee, when he was articulating what was relevant, the question was, you know, what was the nature of the relationship? Uh, I, the romantic aspect of it only is relevant insofar as it relates to how, what that means for the financial Financial. benefits. Right. So, right. The whole thing turns on a financial, on the financial relationship and whether he is, whether she is kicking back or he is kicking back stuff to her without that, there is no, there Ashley merchants theory of it doesn't work. All right, Anna, you can hop off. We're going to go back to Tyler, and then we're going to go through the rest of these questions. All right, Tyler. So we have no delay in New York. We're going to have a trial or jury selection on March 25th. Todd Blanche is upset about it. There's some whining. uh, And then they get to the main point, which is an actual negotiation over the jury questionnaire. Exactly. Yeah. It was pretty interesting to watch uh, the back and forth. I think I, I they went through several questions, maybe maybe 10 to 12 questions um, on some. There was it seemed to be some agreement, more agreement than perhaps Justice Mershon was anticipating, uh, which I think gave him uh, some hope. There was one in particular, uh, th- for example, the first one that 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 was addressed was a question about whether uh, a juror has reads or listens to a number of media organizations, um, or honestly websites. So they, they named everything from NPR to, uh, to, I think several social media sites, uh, and then also major networks, MSNBC, Fox news. Uh, and the, the issue was that the prosecution wanted to add several more conservative leaning outlets, such as ben- the Ben Shapiro show, similar ones, Tucker Carlson network. Uh, there was this back and forth about the list and Mershon just said, why don't we do what I believe they did in the G- E. Jean Carroll case where we just get rid of the list, seemed to be in agreement. The ones that became more contentious were the ones that essentially were getting at, uh, the question was a proxy for political affiliation. Um, these were pretty, I think, pretty clear cut cases where an answer you could quickly deduce uh, someone's political affiliation some of them being, have you ever donated to a political campaign or a PAC? Because the obvious follow-up question there would be, which one, if if they answer in the affirmative? Uh, have you ever had a sign or a bumper sticker for a certain candidate in your, uh, you know, in your lawn and or car, respectively? Um, and I think the the clear, you know, divide here was that 
defense counsel wanted to make this uh, the case about politics. Um, they, they, you know, they paint, they say, they always say the Democrat uh, DA, Alvin Bragg, and the prosecution, I think, has a clear interest in, in keeping it uh, apolitical, just about the facts, um, about the law. Um, there was a lot of uh, that was left unresolved, I think, with regard to the jury selection process and the questions. Um, it seemed that uh, Justice Mershon was was leaving it to the respective sides to sort some of these details out um, outside of the courtroom. Uh, so what's the next thing that's going to happen in this case? We're going to get the motions in limine. We're going to get. But we're heading to trial. We are. Exactly. Uh, the other I think the other big the last big substance substantive issue that came up at trial was the uh, the exhibit list. The. um the prosecution has produced a trial exhibit list, I think numbering over 300 items and the defense has not produced a list at all. Um, so the, the, the people were accusing essentially uh, the defense for, for violating their reciprocal discovery obligations. And they're asking that justice Mershon if for sanctions um, against defense, if, if, if they would continue to do so, uh, including uh, preclusion from, from trial Um this was the only time that that Susan Nichelis actually got up and, and argued for uh, Trump's side. I thought she was quite strong. She had, uh, you know, found herself on the other side of of uh, some of these same attorneys before. Um, it, it was an interesting contrast, I think, to to Blanche, who uh, was a bit more pleading, a bit more um, emotional, a bit more, um, you know, willing to joust with Mershon, whereas. Um, Susan Nichelis kept it very um, tight and and confident and, and and sort of unyielding as well. All right. Um, so we have two more courts to check in on, Roger. D.C. We've got briefing to the Supreme Court about a stay, but we don't have a ruling. What do we know? Uh, the briefing was completed yesterday and there was so maybe in time for the conference this morning. So we could get a decision uh, quickly. Um, if they were to uh, send, if they were to deny the stay, we could start jury selection as early as May 15th by my calculations. Um, if we don't, uh, if they really want to do this, even at an expedited schedule, it's gonna be really click, 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 click. Uh, it's conceivable you could start the jury selection maybe at July 1st, um, uh, maybe the trial at July 15th, uh, that, and then uh, August 15th, uh, September 1st, September 15th, you might get a verdict uh, or, or the jury would get it. Um, so it, it gets really pretty crazy. We'll have that's that's sort of where it stands. But that, we that could one. get a ruling from the Supreme Court anytime. I think so. Day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. OK, so what about South Florida? Uh, you know, petty pace creeping away till the last syllable of recorded time. Um, what's going on down there? Yeah, we're we're going to get I think I forget if it's March First uh, is when there's a, a hearing to determine whether that May 25th trial date is still on. 
seems inconceivable that it would be. Um, meanwhile, uh, there's some disputes. Uh, remember the SEPA Section 4 hearing was held Monday and Tuesday, a sealed section, uh, sealed both days. Um, what we're waiting to find out there is if Judge Cannon wants to show this ultra-sensitive uh, information uh, to Trump's lawyers to help have an adversarial discussion about whether the redactions the government has proposed are uh, fair. Um, and if she do, does that, that will be highly unusual. Uh, it could be the subject of an ex parte, um, I mean, of a uh, interlocutory appeal. Um, on the other hand, uh, they have not asked that Trump see that document. They've only asked that their um, uh, cleared counsel see it. Um, and then the other issue is still what to do with uh, the government has shown the secret documents that form the basis of the first 32 counts to uh uh, uh, they're they're willing uh, they've given access to uh, Trump, who's seen them all before, uh, but also to uh, Nauta and De Oliveira's cleared counsel, but not to Nauta and De Oliveira. And uh, so the cleared counsel are demanding that the uh, their clients see it, even though those their clients aren't charged in those counts. So the government has said no, except for one document, which is the one that spilled out on the floor and Nora saw and took a picture of. Um, and so she's deciding whether to give those to the defendants, to De Oliveira and Trump. And if she says they should uh, get it or have access to them, um, that too could uh, precipitate a... Um, uh, interlocutory appeal. But uh, I, I sort of don't think it will at this point because the government has conceded and uh, in footnotes, I hadn't noticed them at first, but um, that uh, eventually they think Nauta and uh, De Oliveira are entitled to see those. That's their interpretation of the discovery rules, that because they're using them against Trump, all the defendants get to see those. So uh, uh, it, they just want to do it closer to trial, uh, is what they said. Uh, so I don't know if that would warrant an interlocutory appeal if, if they're going to see it anyway. I think the bigger stakes thing it's emerged has to do with unclassified documents. And what's happened here concerns Jenks material. And Jenks material is um, uh, material that uh, it's the government's uh, witness reports, like FBI 302s, also grand jury testimony. Um, and it's considered very sensitive because it's got lots of unchecked statements. It's got things about potential criminal wrongdoing that hasn't been charged. It's it's stuff you don't want the defendant to know this stuff so that they can craft their testimony, because a lot of defendants are liars. And if you tell them 
what your evidence is. They will say, they will, you know, manufacture alibis and stuff like that. So it, it could also affect the jury. Um, it could and it, and the witnesses could get harassed and intimidated and, in fact, in some cases killed. So you don't want to reveal that. And so by statute, you don't have to reveal that until the witness actually takes the stand and has testified. And that's when you need to turn over his statements. Well, uh, uh, the government here, you know, remember in the beginning, it wanted to move really quickly and it wanted to show good faith and it wanted to have a trial date of in December and last December. And and so it, it turned over a lot of discovery and it turned over Jenks material under protective order. And now the defense in a motion to compel appended some of these things under seal, but said we want to unseal it. And the judge said, well, uh, and, and the government opposed the government. It, it actually, you know, it, it was sparing in what it said. Most of the stuff you can you can unseal, but not the stuff that's Jenks. And and then on reply, the defendant said, uh, uh, well, we take no position on those redactions. And the judge said, no, I'm going to unseal it because you haven't shown me a compelling interest uh, that would keep them sealed. And and the government uh, says, wait a minute, you've you've used the wrong standard here. Uh, it's it's not compelling interest. It's just good cause. And, you know, this is right in the statute. So uh, he, they've moved to reconsider. This is a, a pretty high stakes thing. Um, and uh, I think the defendant files its motion um, on the 23rd, replying to their motion to reconsider. All right. I think that brings us through everything I meant to cover today. So let's get through uh, seven questions and then we will wrap. Mitchell asks, is there any precedent for a personal principle in criminal trials in regards to candidates running for president? If not, how likely do you think it is that the court will establish this precedent at any point in any of these trials? So the personal principle is the idea that you shouldn't issue a ruling on the rules of elections too close to the election. Um, look, there is a principle that the Justice Department does not take overt acts in investigations involving named candidates within 60 days of an election. Uh, how courts schedule trials is not covered by that idea. I suspect the Justice Department uh, will not urge the start of a trial in uh, within that window, but I'm also certain that it won't resist if a court happens to schedule something running into that. William asks, this morning, lawsuits seeking to hold Donald Trump personally accountable for his role in, in the January 6th attack on the Capitol can move forward after the former president chose not to take his broad immunity claim to the Supreme Court. I'm not sure that there's a question there. Um, but uh, uh, Roger, have you, I take it blast, with a blasting game appeal, deadline has now passed? 
Yeah, the mandate issued uh, this morning. So, yeah, I guess that can go forward. But I, I don't know what the schedule is there. I, I don't think they're that far because it was a motion to dismiss. I so see. they yeah, haven't. No, been they haven't even started discovery yeah. yet. Yeah. Nathan asks, what's everyone's wager on whether or not the Supreme Court, while likely to rule for Trump versus Anderson, will still go so far as to drop in the opinion and for the historical record at least a sentence or two on January 6th and against the Constitution, thus serving, if only indirectly, as an antidote to the contrary, if not deranged behavior with the truth emanating from Trump that largely brings us all here. Uh, so I take it what you mean here is what are the chances that they'll slip in some language uh, uh, saying that January 6th was an insurrection and Trump was engaged in it? My wager would be very unlikely. What, Roger, uh, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I don't think so. Um, unless, you know, if somebody tries to get him off the hook, uh, I think the other side will will uh, uh, go into it in, in more detail. But uh, and I hear uh, at one point I thought, uh, you know, maybe Thomas and Alito would try to say uh, this wasn't an insurrection. But uh, at this point, I think not only is that legally untenable, but but I also think Thomas, because of Ginny, doesn't want to get anywhere near discussing January 6th. So I, I don't think they're going to discuss it. Mark asks, upon reflection, I don't think anyone on the panel realized or predicted how the Supreme Court appeared to be moving in the article uh, in the uh, uh, Section 3 case. I'm not judging, but has this made any of you reassess or change your prediction for how the Supreme Court may rule on unrestricted presidential immunity? Roger, you want to take that one first? I still think that um, the Chief Justice, at least, uh, probably wants to throw a bone to each side uh, so that if he's going if if the court is going to pour the petitioners out uh, in the Anderson case, uh, he's not going to want to at the same time have the court effectively end the prosecution in D.C. And that's what it would, you know, if he takes that this case and uh, takes his sweet time about it, that's what he could do. Yeah, I will just I will just add to that, that these cases are very different from one another. When we uh, did not anticipate the direction the Supreme Court seemed to be going, uh, the Section 3 case is a matter of first impression it has very little interpretive history, none at the Supreme Court, and it bends ideological uh, preconceptions a lot. Presidential immunity is a matter about which we know a lot about what the justices think because they've written recent cases, things like Mazars, uh, immunity privileges cases, so that there, there's a much better basis to assess it. Um, and I, I just don't think there are three, let alone five votes for the idea of this kind of immunity that the president is asking for. 
All right, from anonymous attendee, for how long are the independent monitor and the compliance officer in place? Any idea? Not really. Uh, the the uh, it, I think it's clear that the independent monitor is in place for longer than uh, she was uh, yesterday because uh, he, he really now wants her to make recommendations uh, about how to go forward. And I think it also depends on what she continues to find. But no, I haven't been following the case uh, closely enough to, to do better than that. All right. Auntie asks, do we know how many attorneys are on Trump's payroll on these active criminal and civil trials? Any guesstimate as to how much it's costing him? So I can take that one. Uh, the answer is lots but not enough because um, they're actually double teaming. So uh, as Tyler was describing before, uh, Todd, um, sorry, uh, Blanche. Blanche, thank you, uh, was complaining yesterday that he's got the uh, case in Florida as well, as well as the one in New York. So you have uh, a lot of lawyers. They are, there are multiple different teams uh, the group in Washington is a different group from the group in New York and, and Florida. Um, but um, we don't know. I don't think we know exactly how many there are. And by the way, the Florida, the Georgia lawyer uh, with the ostrich boots is a completely, you know, he's just a Fulton County lawyer, a Georgia lawyer. So it's a bunch of different teams. Uh, and there, of course, then there's the Alina Haba group, right, who did some of the civil cases. So there's there's a, a bunch of different teams. How much is it costing him? Uh, we don't know. We know how much some of the PACs are paying, which is in the you know $50 million range last year. But I don't think we know how much he's paying, if anything. Ben, I'll also add quickly um, that you know, while Blanche is the co, sorry, is the lead counsel on, on both cases, there's obviously a, a different team down in Florida dealing with with that case, which Mershon brought up every time that Blanche tried to use that as an excuse for delay. He would say, you know, I think Mershon said at one point, doesn't doesn't the defendant have counsel down there as well as, you know, as like a, you know, this uh, seeing through it, uh, essentially. All right. Last question from Lindsay. Um, when will Trump likely have to pay his whopper of a judgment? Will he be able to stretch it out for a really long time, Roger? and get loans, or will he have to sell real estate? Uh, he'll be able to stretch it out a really long time, but but he, I believe he has to post bond within 30 days. And, and so the, the crunch will begin uh, soon. And, and one of the, uh, one of the uh, in, in the chat, uh, one of the viewers pointed out correctly, I think it's John Bordeaux, that uh, the, the, the judgment itself or the order itself today it forbids, uh, it seems to forbid Trump from getting loans from New York financial institutions. So that, uh, uh, that may, you know, maybe, a, 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 maybe a Florida institution will put up this bond. I'm not sure how that works, or maybe he can get a, an exception for the bond. I don't know, but, uh, the crunch begins, uh, immediately the the lawyer mentioned twice pronounces her name susan necklace not 
not not jealous, but I'll leave that. We're going to leave it there. Roger Parloff, Tyler McBrien, Anna Bauer, thank you all for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Matt Gluck of Lawfare. Folks, become a material supporter of Lawfare. Then you can join us in the Virtual Jungle Studio for these recordings. It's really fun. We got a great chat. You get to get your questions answered. You know you want to do it. So go to lawfaremedia.org support. Become a material supporter now. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the great Jen Patia. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.